Good morning. Uh, once again, the music, not only such a blessing, but what a segue into the message, standing on the promises that cannot fail when howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. What a blessing uh, music worship is in itself. We were talking uh, this morning, uh, Rachel and I. You know, it allows us to come together as a group and to raise our voices. And some of us can sing, but we can't do it unless we've got that framework of the music and others joining in to go along. What a blessing it is. You know, there's a, I can't remember the name of it. There's a, a, an apologetics book. I think it's called 101 Proofs of God. And number 76 was the music of Bach. And it didn't say anymore. And as I was listening this morning, it was like, what a blessing. And that says the music of Bach is a proof of God. And then the only other comment there was, you either get this one or you don't. And they moved on to number 77. Um, you know, though every generation uh, has faced temptation and trials, today the enemy is working at a feverish pitch. He knows his time is short. The devices and temptations and trials that he's using uh, to try to draw believers back into the world or to sink us in doubt and worry, to bring upon us depression and pain, to inhibit our living for our Lord and Savior. It's really at a fever pitch. Tuck this thought away. We're going to turn to Micah, Micah chapter 7. It's in the middle of the minor prophets right after Jonah and right before Nahum. But I want you to tuck this thought away for a minute. It comes right out of the scripture and it's, again, this will almost seem like it hardly fits, but Romans 6 verse 7 tells us, he who has died is freed from sin. Father, we thank you for the promises that you have given us, that we stand upon them and forgive us when we doubt. Uh, when we look at the waves, the howling storm around us instead of uh, at our Savior. Well, you know our weakness, uh, Father, and, and you love us as only a, a perfect Father can. And we're so grateful for uh, your promise, for the surety that you have given us in your Son. So help us this morning uh, to see in your word these promises, to be uh, emboldened and encouraged and strengthened for the battle, that we might let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and give glory to you and to your Son, in whose name we gather and pray. Amen. Uh, a basic question about the Christian life, uh, I'm going to ask it uh, this morning, um, and the answer can, can sort of prevent some, some of these troubling doubts and the fears and Give us a reason for the blessed hope. And one of the thoughts is, our brother mentioned it there in the worship service this morning, out of Colossians, it's Christ in us. And we have this hope of glory. And it's an amazing thing. 
And this question that I'm going to ask this morning is, can a Christian sin? I'm a rhetorical question, but I might Riley add there's more than one answer. Can a Christian sin? You know, some messages preach the gospel, others uh, exhort righteous living, others, you know, um, warn of accountability. Others might tell us of our assignments, our roles, and what we might be doing as individuals in the body of Christ about our gifts. And some of the most pleasant ones are ones which give encouragement, which give hope. And I certainly hope that the message this morning gives you encouragement, hope as it has me. But we certainly wanted to touch on the others as well. Every message ought to draw us closer to God and give us a more clear picture of him. As scripture tells us, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We don't go to teachers for, for wisdom and knowledge. Hopefully the teachers lead us to that fount which bears it all, and that's the word of God. So as we look at Micah 7, he's one of the minor prophets, some 700 years before the time of Christ, a contemporary of Isaiah. Um, he's prophesying primarily to Jerusalem and Judah, but he also clearly uh, prophesies to Samaria, to the northern kingdom. And he's talking about uh, pending judgment. Now this seventh chapter in, in the, the book of Micah, uh, we're gonna draw some parallels. Now prophecy, again, is we tend to think of it as prediction and fulfillment, but as I've mentioned before, the Hebrew mind, and I think the spiritual mind should see it not only as prediction and fulfillment, but also is a pattern which establishes for us the manner in which God deals with mankind. And again, it's, he's consistent. He is not a God of confusion. And what he portrays for us is the foundation upon which we build our hope. So in this chapter, really, we get a picture of Judah, a picture of believers um, living in the world, and then towards the end of the chapter, we, or throughout the balance of the chapter, and particularly the end, we see the picture of them in glory at a, at a time when the fullness of time brings us into the presence of our God and Savior from whom we get our light. But starting at uh, the beginning of Micah chapter 7, verse 1, Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which I crave. The godly person is perished from the land. There is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks to the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchmen, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, or in other translations more graphic, even the woman you lie with, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's own, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. 
Now, can there be any question in our mind but what this speaks of the times in which we're living and how it parallels what the prophet is speaking of? Consider that last sentence. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. You know how hurtful it is and how sad it is that sometimes a church's worst enemies are some of the Christians within the church itself. You know, we're separated from our brothers and sisters up and down the streets that have different names on the door. But if they gather together in the name of the Lord, they're our brothers and sisters. You know, Sherry and I have been gone a while now. We were at the Yosemite Conference. We spent some time in Bishop. And if we're there over the weekend, it's our habit to visit one of the churches locally. We had never been to the Calvary Chapel before. We went there this, this last Sunday when we were there. What a blessing. What dear brothers and sisters in Christ. We listened to a visiting pastor from a Calvary Chapel in Arroyo Grande deliver a, a wonderful, excellent message on the lies of Satan. But how many times from amongst our own ranks do enemies rise up and stifle the work? Pride welleth up, and the Lord has to set us aside. Well, the prophet doesn't stop there, continuing in verse 7. He says, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. You know, we read in Proverbs 24, 16, that even though the righteous man falls seven times, he will rise again. But the wicked, when they fall, are destroyed. He continues, though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I, I can't help but think of, I'm going to turn there actually, um, Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Again, a picture, I mean, it's the one that opens with, Behold, the arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save, or his ear so dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have created a separation between you and your God. In, in Isaiah 59, he speaks of the confusion of the wickedness, beginning in verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. What a story of, of mankind. We think we're wise, but we're fools. We think we walk in the light, but we're like blind men groping along a wall. A little further on, we, we read how the Lord sees that there's no justice and it's displeasing in his sight. He sees there's no man to intercede, and by his own arm, he brings forth salvation. Um, it talks about a redeemer coming. The next chapter begins with, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will, ap up, will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And that's, again, the picture of when our dark days are done in this world. We have light. The word of God is a 
lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We can't see very far down there, but he says, you don't need to see three or four steps ahead. He says, I've, I've told you what the destination is. I've given you the glorious picture here in my word. The question is, you know, do we believe God? Again, he asks us that question every day, right? Do you trust me? No, I struggle with it. I think anybody who says he, he doesn't is um, either in the word 100% of the time or he doesn't recognize he's struggling or he's maybe being less than honest. That's why we're to encourage one another. We all struggle. As we look around and see the trials and tribulations, how can we not be at times discouraged? That happens when we look at the waves and the storm instead of the Savior. So he says here, though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. And that's that glorious promise. His promises are sure and secure. If we jump down to uh, verse 18 of uh, Micah chapter 7. You know, Micah, they say his, uh, his Hebrew name actually means who is like Yahweh, who is like Jehovah. Verse 18 opens with that. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the, remem re the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Again, words written uh, to Israel and Judah, primarily to Judah. But it's for all ages. This is the pattern in which he deals. This reminds me of, you know, in the Psalms, Psalms 41 through 44, a picture of the church age now going through these times of trial and tribulation. And the 45th Psalm is that the glorious, the king receives his bride. And a picture of us being raptured. In the next several Psalms, picture the time of the tribulation. Brothers and sisters, we're at one minute to midnight. The Lord is soon to return, and the trials and tribulations we, we're going through right now, well, when we're in the midst of them, we can stand on the promises of God. Back to our, our question, can a Christian sin? And I'd, I'd say that no matter how you answer that, yes or no, in a sense, you are correct. And that's really what we want to look at this morning, uh, this duality. We live in these bodies of death, and yet we have the promise of glory. Again, our brother mentioned this morning out of, out of uh, Colossians, Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 27, we're told, For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Based on that verse and the ones our, our brother quoted in a worship service, when God looks at a believer, he sees the righteousness of his own son. It's astounding. We've, 
we're justified and glorified in his eyes. He sees no hint, no shadow of sin upon us. You know, now we're not sinless. We certainly hope that we end up sinning less. But if we look in the mirror honest with ourselves, we know we still stumble. But in the eyes of God, our sin doesn't exist. Horrible effects of sin do remain in both present day and eternally. For the unbeliever, there's eternal death. We see physical uh, death all, all around us. That's the evidence there's something wrong. And if the Lord tarries, we're each going to taste that physical death. But we don't have to fear the sting of eternal death. And it's ironic that eternal death was taken away by a, a death, the death of our Savior. We see the physical suffering. Some of us are going through it. We, we know when we look at the, the board on Wednesday nights about the saints who are suffering. We question, why, Lord? He has a plan. We see mental and, and soulful suffering as, as we deal with these issues and wrestle with them. The answer, of course, is in Scripture. You know, as Hosea said, my people are perishing for a lack of knowledge. For the believer, there can be intense spiritual suffering as we begin to doubt. It inhibits our ability to serve the Master, to bring glory to our Savior. Present-day consequences, eternal consequences. Yet we have the promise of the, the psalmist, Thou hast shown me the pathways of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We believers have a glorious eternity awaiting us. But even believers should ask, will the things I do in this world affect my eternity? Will it follow us? I guess another way of asking that is, does a Christian have anything to fear? I think the, the honest short answer is yes. We're not going to dwell on that. I'll touch on it briefly. I, I really want to look at the things that have given me hope and encouragement and reason to live a life boldly for the Lord. And I'm stumbling and struggling at that, brothers and sisters. I'm not portraying that I have got this, this whip. The Lord led me here because I needed it. And I, you know, again, honestly, I think every one of us is going to need this encouragement. That's why we're called to stimulate, to provoke one another into love and good deeds. I like that word provoke out of the King James. We have a negative connotation of it. But all it really means is to elicit an excited response. And that's what we want to do with one another elicit an excited response on behalf of our Lord and Savior and encourage one another to approach the finish line with vigor. We are accountable to God. We're going to have to stand before him, as you know, Paul tells, tells us in Romans 14, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God, give an account of ourselves. He tells us again in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we'll receive recompense for our deeds, be they good or evil. Um, but Christians have absolutely nothing to fear if we live our lives fully submitted to the Lord. And as I've said, I'm struggling. How are you guys doing with that? You know, that's a rhetorical question. Don't, don't answer. Again, I'm not saying we should live in fear of, of eventual God. In fact, the opposite is true. Just like he told us through Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. They are to prosper you, not to harm you. 
Um, you know, I mentioned finishing a race. I, I kind of think of it this way. Like I said, I, believe it or not, once upon a time I, was, I had a slender physique. Uh, I wasn't fat, I wasn't a sprinter, but I could run almost forever. I often ran 20, 30 miles at a crack. God is trying to accomplish with his exhortation of us, I, I believe it's similar to a loving parent who's watching his child run a cross-country race. You can do it, you can do it. He, he wants to reward us lavishly when we finish the, cross the finish line. Now, the race is not a sprint. You know, it was a sprint for the thief on the cross, wasn't it? His was a sprint. For most of the rest of us, it's a long, arduous race that we run. But he wants to reward us. I believe it was C.T. Studd who said, it may be secret sin on earth, but it's open shame in heaven. I'm not sure. I think he was the one who said that. Similarly, the results of our work in Christ may be hidden here on earth, but they're gloriously manifest in heaven, and God is just waiting to reveal them to us when we get there. Amy Carmichael once said, we have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only a few short years in which to win them. So we do want to live a life which is one of obedience. You know, um, I haven't asked Christians, particularly new ones who just trust Christ on the, on the, at the pier or something, I'll say, you've made the most important decision uh, in life. That is, where are you going to spend eternity? And you've chosen wisely. Now let's consider the second most important question. I know. They'll look at me quizzically like a dog cocking his head. What? And I'll, I'll ask him. I said, when you get to heaven, are you going to live in a mansion or a tent? What kind of building material are you sending on ahead? Can't take it with us, but we can send it ahead. You know, the reality of rewards in heaven uh, should astound us if we think of it uh, properly. I was talking about things being hidden here on earth, but it's really astounding in that we're doing work in which the, a lot of times the results here are invisible, but the work is appearing in eternity. The things we're doing here now are manifest already in eternity. And boy, if you can, if, and I get a glimpse of that from time to time, it really excites me. Well, you know, the truth is, as we mentioned earlier, God sees us as perfectly pure if we're in Christ. We're fully purged of sin. But it's a, oftentimes a question, how do we see ourselves? Are our fears justified? And some of the reasons a believer might have the fear is, depends on what we do with our sin. Do we hide it or deny it because of pride? Do we magnify it in rebellion or selfishness? There is the, uh, the fact of our present duality. The, we, we live in a body of death, and yet we're new creatures in Christ. We have a body of life. while alive, our actions do have consequences. And if we sin here, we can, that, that eternal penalty of sin is put away. But if you sin here, I tested this, trust me, I, I know where I speak. If you sin here, the consequences of those sins will visit you here in this life. That's not rocket science. We know that. We don't want to dwell on, on our sin. 
I don't want to forget it so that I don't remember the shame of it. I want to remember it just enough that I, I, well, I don't want to go back there. Reasons for believer, not the fear. And that has to do with what God has done with our sin. And that's where I hope to spend the bulk of the message. Again, the, the, a believer's sin penalty no longer exists. God sees Christ living in us. And then the immutability of God, his unchangeableness. He never changes, and his promises never fail. Briefly, wrong things we do with our sin, again, we hide it. If you read Psalm 32, a, a glorious psalm on repentance from David, that in Psalm 38, in addition, of course, with Psalm 51, he talks there about, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all day long. It was when he confessed it to the Lord that he, he had relief. Uh, you know, Jesus speaking to uh, Nicodemus talked about, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I want to hide our sin. You know, Paul points out, or he's actually quoting from um, the Old Testament. Uh, again, actually from uh, Psalm 32, I believe. How blessed is the man when his sins are not imputed to him. Hebrews 4.13 tells us all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. We know we can't hide something from God but we like the darkness. John Piper put it this way, it's not that we don't have enough light, it's that we love the darkness. That's a dangerous place for us believers to be. Sometimes we hold on to our sin because we like it. And the pleasures of sin are short-lived and deadly. You often hear about the, the passing, you know, the season of sin is fleeting. Moses chose to uh, endure ill treatment rather than pursuing the passing pleasures of sin. Job 20, verse 5, tells us that the triumphing of the wicked is short. We might laugh at it, and there we're just indicating that our amusement is more important than the suffering of Christ. We might try to legitimize it, doubting what God has said, like Satan said, half God said. Sometimes we give, uh, we ascribe to sin power that it does not have over us as believers. Paul would tell us in Romans 6 that sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Colossians 3, verse 3, tells us we've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And again, as I opened up with Romans 6, verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. If we've died with Christ and been buried with him, we're dead to sin and gloriously raised with him to eternal life. We're a new creature in Christ. The old dead man in the eyes of God is, is in fact dead. In that sense, a Christian can't sin. And yet, what would we call our disobedience? Well, it's sin. But fortunately, when Christ died on the cross for me, at that time, all my sins were in the, in the future. But all my sins, past, present, and future, have all been laid upon the Savior, and he's put them away. Well, let's focus on what, uh, what God has done uh, with our sin. 
uh, as we read in Micah 7, verse 19, um, he throws it in the sea and treads it underfoot. Um, he, you know, uh, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And I'll tell you, in the illustration, brothers and sisters, sin doesn't float. It is sunk out of sight. You have the picture of the Israelites leaving Egypt, Egypt being a picture of the world and passing through the waters, them and the mixed, mul the mixed multitude. I think that's most of us, brothers and sisters, the Gentiles, those who joined in with the Jews because they, they believed what God was doing. They passed through and went out the other side. The Egyptians, a picture of the world and sin, were pursuing, trying to take away their redemption. The waters crashed in on them and they all drowned. You know, John McKay, a, a Reformed theologian, put it this way. He said, the Egyptians were prevented from catching up with the fleeing Israelites and reversing their deliverance. The freedom of the people of God will not be marred by some consequence of their past sin catching up with them to spoil their delight in the provision God has made for them. Uh, Tim Challies added to that, not a single Egyptian soldier uh, crawled onto the bank to continue to torment Israel. And not a single one of your sins will continue to torment your soul. I, I might differ a little with them on that. While I'm yet alive, at times, my sins will torment my soul today. The conscience is a good thing that God has given us. Again, we don't want to bear baggage that we don't have to carry. But praise God that we have conscience that is not seared. He treads it underfoot. Um, you know, he kind of stomps. I get this picture of a loving parent who sees a spider on the floor approaching their infant lying nearby and smashing that spider. There's nothing left. In Isaiah 38, 17, he, we're told, he throws it behind his back. It is you who have kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Symbolically, God can't see our sins. He blots out our sin and remembers them no more. In Isaiah 43, 25, and I'm going to read from the new, I know I normally teach from the New American Standard, but the New King James or the King James I like is it uses the word blot, which me is a much more powerful word than to wipe away. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Again, to blot out is to remove all record, to completely erase from existence any evidence of sin and his connection with us. I think that calls for a hallelujah. <laughs> you know, Hebrews um, chapter 8, verse 12, we read, I will remember their sins no more. And again, this is, again, this is quoting from Jeremiah 31, 34, but God chooses to remember our sins no more. God's not a forgetful person, but he chooses not to remember our sin. He can do that because he's not ignoring them. They've been paid for. He's a just God and he remains just, but he says, I am never going to bring again to mind that which, a debt which has been paid already. He removes sin from our presence. Psalm 103, we, we like that. As far as the east is from the west. Now, the east is infinitely far from the west. If you start heading east and keep going east, you are never going to come to the west if you can grasp that concept. It's not, it's not, the, not the same with north-south. I can only go so far north on this globe before I start heading south again. But east to west, and that's the picture 
Our sins have been removed from us an infinite distance. He takes our sin away. It's been borne away by Jesus. John the Baptist, when he sees the Christ approaching, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What God has taken away, no one's going to bring back. God covers our sin and cancels our sin debt. You know, Romans chapter 4, and here's where, where Paul is actually quoting again from Psalm 32, the opening verses of Psalm 32, that, that again, that, that psalm on repentance. Blessed are those who lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You know, it's not just that our sins are, are hidden, you know, something piled on top of them or behind a box in the corner. No, it's more like, in, in the way a friend might say, I've got it covered when you try to pay for your share of a, of a, a meal you've shared together. God's covered sin and all its effect upon us, the cost, the penalty, the blame, e even the history. As believers, we're free of it all. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, we have that glorious picture where it tells us, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's what happened to my sin. That's what happened to your sin if you're in Christ. It's what stirred Horatio Spafford to write that glorious third stanza of his hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, where he says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This after losing all of his children at about the spot where he penned that hymn in the middle of the ocean. The Lord gives grace as it's needed. And in the time of sorrow and tribulation and in this storm that he was going through where all of his children had drowned, he stood on the promises of God. God washes away our sin. Hebrews 10, I'm going to read from a very obscure a translation because it uses the term wash. It's, it's not a bad translation. It's written for initially for the Inuit, for, for the northern people in North America, that English was a second language, and English can be very confusing. But the New Living Version uh, puts Hebrews 10.10 10 this way, Our sins are washed away, and we are made clean because Christ gave his own body as a gift to God. He did this once for all. And, of course, the verse we think about when we talk about washing away of sins, Isaiah 118. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Two verses earlier, God is, you know, exhorting them, wash yourselves of your iniquities. We can't wash ourselves of our iniquities. Yeah, we can choose to sin less, but it's God who provides this. God also forgives us our sin, as we know in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does all mean? All means all. 
God exchanges our sin for righteousness. If he washes it away, he's going to give us something to replace it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin was made to become our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he's thrown it into the sea, treaded it underfoot, thrown it behind his back, blotted out, remembers it no more, removes sin from our presence, takes away sin, borne away by Jesus, covers our sin, cancels the debt, washes our sin, forgives us our sin, gives us righteousness. That's the reason for the hope that we have. These finished works of God for our sin. He's painted a clear picture that is irrevocable. Again, if we're in Christ, God has made it abundantly clear that to him, our sin no longer exists. A Christian can't sin. Again, I don't want to add confusion here. You've heard me speak many times that our works do matter. Again, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and receive recompense, payment for our deeds done in the flesh, be they good or be they evil. There's reason we ought to have a little concern. How am I doing? I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't want to be the one like in 1 Corinthians 3 where I get into heaven, but all my works burn up. The smell of smoke on, maybe I won't even have any. If I pass through the fire, the clothes might be gone. It'll be a shameful thing. Well, we're running short of time, so I mean, you've got the brunt of the message. We sang about it repeatedly this morning. What a glorious thought. We have a great God, wonderful Savior, who has called us, who has justified us, who has glorified us, as Romans 8 verse 30 so beautifully points out. That entire chapter is a summation of the dependableness of God. It opens with no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It closes with, I thought, a whole litany of things are written there, but it means that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And in between, we have that picture of the Spirit helping us, coming alongside, causing all things to work for, together for good for those who love God or called according to his purpose, whom he foreknew, be predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, that he might be the firstborn, the prototokos of many brethren, and whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. God before us, who can be against us? Who can bring a charge? Christ Jesus, it is he who justifies. And brothers and sisters, if we're in Christ, and if Christ is in us, we're on a foundation that cannot be shaken. And though you may be passing through the trials and tribulations of life, do not be discouraged. Fix your eyes upon him, the author and finisher of our of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and was sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And consider him who endured hostility of sinners, that we not grow weary, faint of heart. A believer has the promises of God, and we should live as if we believe them. The unbeliever, the one who is put off getting right with God, doesn't have that and should be very afraid. 
Again, as I said, if the Lord tarries, we're all going to taste death. It's appointed unto man once to die. Then the judgment. How soon is your appointment coming? Perhaps there's someone listening today, again, that doesn't know their, their destiny. They do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You're not in him. He's not in you. He is calling you to come. Scripture is very clear. You can know what's going to happen to you for all eternity. When John said, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I write unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We can know. And if you don't know, today would be a great day to resolve that issue. We'd love to talk. This would be an appropriate prayer for a sinner to pray. Again, it isn't a prayer that saves you. It's not spoken words. It is the language of the heart. God looks at the heart. We can say, oh God, I am the sinner that Jesus died to save. And even though I deserved a punishment, he died in my place and paid for every one of my sins. And though he died for me, you raised him again to eternal life, proving you can give the life you promise. I trust now in Jesus as my Savior and ask you to forgive me. And I thank you for this indescribable gift. Make me the person you would have me to be. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Father, indeed, we do thank you for your love and for the guarantee, the surety of your promise. The fact that you've not made just promises, but you have put your spirit within us. Your son himself dwells within us. Your spirit guides us moment by moment. And though we be tested and tried, and though the, the storm may assail us, Yet we know our anchor is sure and firm and the forerunner who has entered into that glorious harbor is pulling us in and nothing can shake us loose. Oh, what a glorious thought, Father. As we part our, our ways this morning, bless us with your continued presence. Strengthen us that we might walk in a way which bears witness of a loving God, merciful Savior, boundless love, and promises that can never be broken. We fall down before you and worship, O oh Father. Lord Jesus, we lift you up and magnify your name. And we ask for your blessing in your name. Amen.